Thanks, Ben. <clears throat> Thanks, guys. You, the time of worship and song was just uh, was really awesome this morning. Thank you for for lifting up your voices and, and praising Jesus in in that way. Um, I want to I want to get started this morning by sharing with you a little bit about my mom. She goes by Jeej. Um, so what I'm going to share with you, for those of you who know her, might um, I don't know shock you a little bit. So. Over the course of her career, she retired about a year and a half ago. Um, on more than one occasion, she broke people's ribs. She stabbed people regularly, and she would isolate them away from their loved ones. Now, if I just left that hanging there like that, you would think my mom, not very nice. Horrible, maybe even liked to hurt people. However, if I were gonna go on and explain to you that my mother was an oncology nurse. And sometimes she was required to do CPR on frail and or elderly patients. That she would administer chemotherapy and pain meds through injections. Um, it might bring a little more clarity into the situation. If I were to go on and to tell you about her patients' families, who I still bump into, patients from 10, 15, 20 years ago, who tell me what an angel my mother was and how great she was to their family in their hardest moments. My mom finished her career as a hospice nurse, the, one of maybe the hardest jobs I could ever think of. And then if I would go one step further and show you a picture of my mom, right? That's Gigi and that's Desi. Um, a, a more full picture would be unveiled. Now, no doubt, that my mom's patients um, were, she in, inflicted some amount of pain upon them, right? Whether it was the CPR or the chemotherapy or the effects of the chemotherapy. But when we understand her context and we understand her and we get a little glimpse into her character and then we see a picture of all five foot nothing of her, maybe a hundred pounds, um, we have a better understanding of who she is and maybe even an appreciation, not even maybe, like it's likely that when you learn all of those things that you appreciate what she did, what she was called upon to do. Now, as we continue in our study of the Old Testament, this is just an illustration and it will fall apart at some point, um, but I'm, I'm hoping that it gives us a little bit of a, uh, a help, really, when it, it comes to thinking about some of the harder parts of the Bible. And today, as we look, take a second look at Joshua, we're going to look at the God-ordained violence that God commanded Joshua and the Israelites as they went about conquering the promised land. And some of these passages are difficult, and some of them, I would go so far as to call them troubling. But for me, that's one of the things that I appreciate about the Bible. It doesn't leave the hard stuff out. It doesn't try to, to pretty anything up. It doesn't read like a propaganda piece. The characters with all their flaws, the situations with all their tension and complexity, they're all there. And at, particularly at our current cultural moment, I don't think we can shy away from those things. When people are looking for any excuse to walk away from God or any excuse not even to, to take a step towards him, we have to... Um, we ourselves, we have to be gracious with ourselves and allow us the opportunity 
to ask those questions. Like, what, what is God doing? What is going on in these passages, in these difficult passages? And we have to be gracious with other people. We have to do our best to not get defensive when people call out these hard passages and say, what is your God doing in the Bible? So we're going to look at, there's, there's several kind of difficult passages throughout the Bible. We're going to look at just one set of them and the, the violence of the, the Old Testament that happened in the conquest of Canaan. But my hope and my prayer is that it will provide maybe a thought process, maybe a framework, maybe some ideas that as you encounter other difficult parts of the Bible, you might feel better equipped to deal with them. That you might not only feel better equipped, but your relationship with God might even be strengthened. And that as we go out into our lives, that we might even feel better equipped to live more Jesus-y lives. So we're going to um, jump back into, the, um, into Joshua, right? We're going to do a little, little recap. We start in Joshua chapter 1. God commissions Joshua as the new leader of Israel. Joshua chapter 2, which we skipped over, is the story of Rahab. So before the entire Israelite nation crossed over the Jordan, Joshua sent two spies over the river to go check out Jericho, to do some reconnaissance. And it was found out that they were there and the authorities were looking for him. They find a tavern that is run by a woman named Rahab. The Bible uses the word prostitute to describe her. Now, we're not sure if that's prostitute in the way that we would think about it. Scholars suggest that she was the keeper of the tavern that the spies ended up at, but it's definitely probably some shenanigans going on there. Um, so she, she, she had heard about them, right? She had heard about the Israelites, heard about what their God had done, and she goes up to them. She's like, I know who you are, and I know who your God is. He is the God of heaven above and earth below. Rahab recognizes and acknowledges God. And she says, I'll take care of you. I'll hide you. She's like, please just protect my family when you guys come to take the city. All right, so I want you to take Rahab and I want you to stick her in a little back corner of your brain. She's going to be important later. Joshua chapters 3 and 4, the whole nation of Israel crosses the Jordan under God's miraculous hand. God separates the waters. The presence of God goes first in the ark, separates the water. The whole nation comes through. And then we get to Joshua chapter 5, and I want to read to you this interaction. Before the army goes into Jericho, Joshua has an interaction with the commander of God's angel armies. Um, this is chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, so Rahab in the corner, commander of the armies in the other corner, okay? I've been told I have a square head. I have two corners left. I don't know about you guys, but that's just where you keep that stuff. Chapter 6 is the fall of Jericho. God gives Joshua unquestionably the strangest battle plan ever throughout history, before or after. He tells him to take the Ark of the Covenant and the army and march around the city once a day for six days. 
no sound except the battle trumpets. And on the seventh day, they're to do it again. And at Joshua's command, all the people are to shout, the trumpets blow again, and the walls are going to come down. That's exactly what they did. That's exactly what happened. Now, for a little geographic context, that first blue arrow in the upper right-hand corner, that's where they crossed the Jordan. Jericho is about five miles from there-ish, as best as I could tell. And they come in, and they do battle. Walls come down. They do their thing. They march around. Walls come down. This is what we read of after what they did to the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. All right, I'm going to jump ahead to this next map. So this is the whole of the promised land, all that shaded area, right? So Jericho is, is here, and that everything else is what they eventually end up, God gives to them, they end up taking over under God's guidance. We're going to go back now, and we're going to read from, this is jumping ahead to Joshua chapter 10, what they did to that whole region. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded him. That phrase, totally destroyed. I was doing a Bible study with a group of friends a couple Fridays ago, and we were looking at these passages, and it's the first thing that got called out. Totally destroyed. God ordered total destruction. That's hard to read. It's hard to read. And it causes, um, it causes some people who, are, who already have a problem with God to get really upset. There's a gentleman by the name of Richard Dawkins who I would call an aggressive atheist. I'm going to read to you what he has to say about Joshua and the promised land. The ethnic cleansing began in the time of Moses is brought to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. He's really mad at this God he doesn't believe in. Um, so what, like, what are we... The text is troubling. It's upsetting to people can be upsetting to followers of Jesus, obviously upsetting to people who already have a hard time with God in the Bible. Is, is, did God, like, order genocide? Does the Bible teach xenophobia? Which I, I had to look up. It means you don't like people from other countries. Um, does God have anger management issues? What about, how do we reconcile Jesus with the God who's ordering these military campaigns. So there are, there are opposite ends of the spectrum, right? There are people who will tell you, well, God is God. He can do whatever he wants, so stop with your questions, which to some extent is true. God is absolutely God, and he can do what he wants. But when you're wrestling with a difficult text or when somebody's wrestling with their faith, I don't think it's very helpful. The opposite end of that spectrum there are people who say, well, the biblical authors probably got it wrong, and God didn't really, that's not really how it happened, because Jesus wouldn't do that kind of stuff, so that's, that's what we should go. 
The first explanation, while true, is not helpful. The second explanation is just flat out wrong. So <clears throat> our task this morning is to figure out what's going on in these passages and hopefully be able to take some of that, that learning and apply it to other, other difficult passages. So a couple of general points about how to read the Bible. And I say this to you guys a lot. Context is everything. A guy by the name of Dan Kimball wrote this book, How Not to Read the Bible. Um, I will leave this copy and another one over there if you guys want it. It's five bucks. The church is defraying some of that cost. It's a really good book um, about this kind, of, this kind of stuff. But he loves to use the phrase, don't ever read a Bible verse. And he'll just let it hang there. In the text, it's like a dot, dot, dot. Read a chapter. Read a book. Read the book within the big biblical narrative, right? Context is everything. Don't ever read a Bible verse by itself. Second thing is, just because something happens or somebody does something in the Bible doesn't mean we should go and do it, right? David committed adultery. Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the tree. Lots of people doing lots of stuff they shouldn't. It doesn't mean we should go and do it. Not that the Israelites were doing something they shouldn't have, but just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we should go and do it. Um, there are texts in the Bible that are history, and there are things that happened in a specific time for a specific reason, and I, I haven't myself done an extensive look at all of the violence, but from near as I can tell, from what other scholars have to say, is that, I said other scholars, not referring to myself as a scholar, what scholars have to say um, is is that, uh, now I lost my train of thought, I got all distracted, <laughs> is that the violence of the Bible was always preceded by a prophetic word. One of God's chosen people in the Old Testament came and gave warnings and then also gave God's word, like this is what's supposed to happen. It never ha wasn't like up to the people to decide when to do that. It was a divine command. The last thing, is when you come to a difficult passage, just keep reading. Don't give up. Don't toss the Bible up in the air. I don't get it. It's not, it's not worth it. Keep reading. Check out the cross-references, those little letters and numbers that show up in the, in the text. Follow them. They'll, they'll take you to different parts of the Bible. Ask somebody else who's maybe been walking with Jesus a little bit longer. Keep reading. Don't give up on the Bible. So what did we do to kind of what did I share with you to make you think that my mother wasn't a terrorist or a mafia hitman, right? I, we talked about the context in, in which she was working. We talked about her character. We talked about her role, and I showed you a picture of her. So that's what we're going to do with this passage. We're going to look at the, the context first. So the biblical context, the ongoing story of the Bible. God creates humanity for his glory and to co-rule with him over the earth. People screw it up. God goes about reconciling his relationship with humanity, and he does that through the family of Abraham. And it becomes, it starts with him, moves to his family, becomes the nation of Israel, out of whom eventually comes Jesus Christ. But before we get to Jesus, God is, is creating a people, he's drawing a people to himself to be his messengers to help people find him, to help all of the world find him. So he, he talks to the, to the nation of Israel, and this is, this is what he says. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. All right, so that's the kind of where this fits in with the arc of the biblical narrative. God is really clear with the people of Israel that it's not because they're better than any of the other nations. This is two chapters later in Deuteronomy. Listen to this. Here, here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, the Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured, today, the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. If God wants to make sure we get a point in the Bible, he will repeat himself. <laughs> it is not because of the righteousness of the Jewish people. It is because of the sin and evil that is going on in a land around them that he wants to eradicate. That's what's going on here. That's the biblical story. One of the piece you pull Rahab and the warrior out of the corners of your mind. Rahab was a woman. She was a prostitute and she was a Canaanite. All things that don't put her very high up on the list of people in the ancient world. God spoke to her through what was going on. She acknowledged who he was and she and her family, all of her extended family, were welcomed into the family of God. So much so that she's listed in the book of Hebrews and kind of like the hall of fame of faith. And she's in Jesus's genealogy, Jesus's family tree. God didn't not want the Canaanites. He was more than happy to welcome the Canaanites into the family of God. The exchange between Joshua and the warrior when Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, neither. It is not about people. It's not about the people group, right? He wasn't for either side. What was happening in this conquest of Canaan and some of the violence that God ordained is a battle against sin and evil. There was no xenophobia. There was no genocide. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more, right? So the that's the biblical context. That's where we're at. The historical context is this. The Canaanites were the people that were already in the land, and they needed to be displaced because Canaan was, Canaan was not a good place, right? If you think of kind of the moral climate of Las Vegas and the violence of like Detroit and you jam them all into one place, that's kind of Canaan, right? Sorry if you're from Vegas or Detroit, but that's just, <laughs> that's just what it is. Um, and it all, what it all revolved around was their worship. 
They worshiped these other gods. They worshiped a god named Molech who required child sacrifice. And I'm not gonna go into all the gory details, but in some of the commentaries and resources that I read while studying this, it was, it was just brutal, vile, how the sacrifices took, took place. One of the other gods that the people of Canaan worshiped was Baal. And the way that they engaged with Baal was that Baal wanted them to have as much sex as possible during their worship services. And they thought the more sex they had during their worship services with ritual, with um, temple prostitutes, the more Baal would make it rain and the more crops that they would have. Two things that quite possibly are, are the highest things on the list of desecrating the image of God. God will not tolerate his image bearers being violated in that way. So God was having the people that he identified to come in and displace what was going on. We also need to look at what I just kind of termed the war rhetoric of the day. We, we have extra biblical um, sources from Egypt, from the Hittite nations, from Moab, from Assyria. They use phrases like these, just like we find in this text, annihilate totally, empty of humanity. The opposition was utterly, utterly perished. And what we learn as we read more of the historical record is um, their enemies weren't wiped out completely. They were still there, right? So that phrase, totally destroyed, what is it that was in the text? It was hyperbole. And the reason we know this, we have the other sources outside the Bible. In the biblical text, we have several verses. I'm gonna share with you just one. And this is just one verse, right? Within one verse, it says, Joshua um, finished slaying them with very great slaughter until they were destroyed. The second half of the verse says, and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities. Were they totally destroyed or were there survivors? The, the records, the historical records that we have at the time, tell that this is how... <laughs> Um, that this is how records were kept, that they weren't just historical records. They were editorialized, and the, the good guys were made, depending on your side, I guess, made to look like they vanquished things completely. And then the last piece of the historical context is the idea of archaeology. We, at this point, have not come across any archaeological evidence to suggest that there was any civilian life in cities like Jericho, and Ai, the first two cities that were conquered. They were military outposts. So God didn't send the Israelite people into, into villages to kill women and children. He sent them specifically to military outposts to displace the, the armies of this nation that was centered, focused around worshiping these other gods that required these horrific things. All right, so all of that stuff, the historical context kind of helps us understand a little bit of what's going on. We have the biblical context, where it fits in the story, what God is doing, what the battle is actually happening, not against people, but against sin and evil. I want to share with you God's role. God is always first and foremost for his own glory, right? And that could make him sound egotistical, self-centered, megalomaniacal. I said it right this time. When I did it in Stratford, I didn't say it. Or I could not pronounce that word. Um, 
we could really go on a long time, but God's pursuit of his own glory, if God really is perfect, if he is everything that we believe him to be that scripture teaches, the best thing that he can do is to draw attention to himself, is to help as many people as he can see him clearly. God is for his own glory. So if you take those phrases, right, for his glory, God created humanity. For his glory, God called Israel. For his glory, he rescued all of them. He did those, like that's in the text. I'm not just adding them. That's actually the rest of the text. God was in pursuit of his own glory. That's what this was about in an attempt to get the world to see him for who he actually is. Kind of everything falls underneath God's glory. And some of the other things that he did was he wanted to, the phrase that Kimball uses in How Not to Read the Bible, he wanted to restore the community that was lost from Eden. He wanted to bless the nations. That map that I showed you of the promised land is kind of like the, the crossroads of the world at that point in time. Everything went through there. It was strategic. Where God had his people go was strategic so that all of the nations could be blessed by him. And eventually, that ends up coming to pass through the person of, of Jesus, but it had to start in this kind of center of the world. And the last thing that he's doing to, um, for his own glory is this battle against sin and evil. Wherever warfare exists, there is a spiritual component. What's happening in Ukraine right now, there is a huge spiritual component to it. There are things going on in the spiritual realms that we can't see, but there are forces doing battle. God's armies against the armies of Satan trying to sway that battle. And what we see being played out in the conquest of Canaan is the kind of the physical outworking of that spiritual battle. God's character. God identifies himself to Moses as love. The New Testament tells us that God is love. Exodus 34, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. God's love is a covenant love. A covenant is a sacred agreement. And when we think of agreements or contracts, we think of people. And people can be miserable, and they break promises, and they break contracts. God doesn't break covenants. As a matter of fact, he goes a step further, and through the person of Jesus, he upholds both sides of the covenant. When we fail, he comes in, and he upholds both his side and our side of the covenant for those who choose to believe in, in Jesus. I heard um, somebody refer to covenant love as a rugged commitment to you, to me, that God is always for us and always with us. God is a God of love. He's not just about loving nice people, about loving good people, because that would really, really limit the pool of people to love. Um, <laughs> God's love is enemy loving. Enemy loving. And this is a really hard thing, right? Because we're called to, to follow Jesus. And this is one of the things that he calls us to follow him into, is loving our enemies. But we look at it, I'm not going to read them to you, but these, all these references and everything, there's lots of scripture in the, in the notes. Um, but each one of these passages 
talks about how God wanted to see the Assyrians. He wanted to see the Egyptians. He wanted to bless the Ninevites. He wanted those people to come to him, to be part of his family. And we see that in Jericho. It's not explicit in the text, but if we read between the lines, for seven days, well, for six days, the Israelites marched around the city. Rahab got it before they even started marching. The people in Jericho, like, they could have seen, they, they saw what was going on. God gave them opportunities. God wants all people to come to him and experience him as the God of love. The last piece of his character is the fact that God is a judge. Now, I could have put this under God's role, um, because he does, he is, that is part of his role, but it, his character is that he's perfectly just. He's perfectly just. So the kind of the repeated, one of the repeated storylines we see in the Bible is that God speaks. People listen, great, God, we got you. We're with you, 100%, let's go. They fail. They go, they do their own thing. God says, hey, remember that conversation we had? Got it. We're with you, God. 100%. Let's go. God will warn, God warns his people repeatedly, repeatedly. And he tells them that if they don't heed his warnings, that judgment will be coming. And it's not just for those people who are outside the promised land. The people of Israel got the same warnings. And they didn't heed them either. And they incurred the judgment of God. We, um, I think we struggle with this idea of judgment. I, I think there's a couple reasons for it, right? One, um, we lo- I think we like to look at Jesus, and, and, and sometimes people will pit Jesus against the God of the Old Testament. And in reality, they, I mean, they are the same. They are the same in every way. God of the Old Testament is just as gracious and merciful as Jesus. Jesus is just as much of a judge as the God of the Old Testament. But we would rather just think of Jesus as not. Um, we, we don't like to think about even the Canaanites, right, who did horrible things. We don't like to think about God's judgment falling on them because that means we're we're liable to judgment, right? If God's gonna judge them, we're just as liable, just as open to God's judgment. Um, and that's a scary thing. But it's, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, and I think one other reason why we struggle with judgment is that, now, let me say this first, right? Everybody's got their stuff. We all have hardship, we all have struggle and some of it really significant. But by and large, in this part of the world, we are super comfortable, super comfortable. I'm gonna read to you a quote um, from, it's a little bit long, so I'm not gonna put it up on the screen. This is from a theologian, a professor at Yale, a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's a survivor of the conflict in the former Yugoslavia. He endured unspeakable things. His family endured unspeakable things. He saw things that people shouldn't see. And this is what what he had to say. 
one could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? However, in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining you are delivering a, a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon, you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Wolf, um, in one of his other books, Exclusion and Embrace, talks about forgiveness and the fact that he's forgiven the people who committed these heinous acts against him and his family and his countrymen. And the only reason that he can forgive them as near as he can estimate is the fact that he trusts God's judgment, that justice will be done, that God's justice will be done. So that's God's care. And, and we have a really hard time, right, holding love and judgment in one hand because we have no no reference point for that. We don't know anybody who can do that. And that's why my last point is, is this, is the image of God that we have. Scripture tells us in two different places in the New Testament that Jesus is the exact image of God. Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. So everything that we like about Jesus, the grace and the mercy, it's all there. It's all in our triune God. And this might be a little bit of a strange way of looking at it, but Jesus also used violence. Except he absorbed it all. He received it all. When he hung on the cross, he absorbed the violence of the sin of humanity, not just of his day, of his time, but throughout history. We have this image of God that we can look to with confidence and know, and know that that judgment that is so scary, the price that that judgment would bring has already been paid by Jesus and his death on the cross. The whole Bible is tied together, you guys. Old Testament, New Testament. We have to look at the whole thing. God is the, the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So <clears throat> I apologize if this felt a little bit like a history lesson. Lots of facts, lots of information. What now? What do we, what do, we do with this? It's okay to acknowledge that there are hard parts of the Bible. It's more than okay. It's important to, right? And I... I use the term, be gracious with ourselves. We have to be gracious with other people. We have, to let, we have to let those questions rise, and we have to 
address them honestly. We have to be willing to do the hard work to keep reading. And as we do that, the God of covenant love emerges and he shows himself to be kind and to be patient and not wanting anyone to perish, right? Not wanting Canaanites or Jews or Gentiles or conservatives or liberals or gay or straight or black or white or near or far, no one to perish, but that all would come to him for their forgiveness of sins and that they would experience the life that he intended them to live. So as we think about some of the hard parts of the Bible, we dig into them, and yes, they're hard. We can trust God because he's good and because he's kind and because he's a perfect judge and because he's perfectly loving. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us understand your word. But most of all, we thank you for, for you, for who you are, for what you do, God, for how you call to us. God, help us to address the difficult passages well and not to shy away from them. Help us to receive questions well. Help us to have difficult conversations that along with you, we might bring you glory, that we might shine a bright, clear light on you so that everyone might come to you and become part of your new family. In Jesus' name, amen.